The hospital is supposed to be where people feel safe. What happens when that trust is broken? Welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today I have a very special guest. He is the author of Behind the Murder Curtain and The Art of Investigation, Bruce Sackman. Hi. Hi. Welcome. How are you? <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for asking to come on. I was very excited to have you. Well, I'd be very happy to tell the audience a little bit about myself and uh, what my particular area of expertise is. Yes. So uh, I served as the uh, special agent in charge of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General in their Criminal Investigation Division. And I was responsible for all major criminal investigations involving the VA hospital system from West Virginia to Maine. That was a lot of hospitals on a lot of employees and a lot of veterans. And then I retired from that job in in 2005, and I went to work as the director of internal investigations for a major hospital system in New York City. Okay. Retired from there, and then I went to work for the county government for a while, and then retired from there as well. So three strikes, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) Are you still um, tracking down the serial killers in the hospital? Oh, I still work now with police departments all around the world, assisting them. You know, I, I'm no longer a sworn law enforcement officer, but I'm a consultant now. So I uh, consult with police departments and uh, attorneys and, and other agencies, hospitals sometimes throughout the world. You know, and I've, I've done this in, in London and Wales and in Dubai wow. and uh, all over the United States. So um, it's been quite a fascinating uh, career, I must say. I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the way this all started for me, actually, is that when I, I was working at the V, and let me explain to the audience exactly what the Inspector General is or what their responsibilities are. So each federal agency has an Inspector General, and the purpose of that Inspector General is to ferret out fraud, waste, and abuse in that agency. So if you're the Inspector General of the Department of Defense, then you do the Department of Defense crimes. If you're Department of Agriculture, you would do Department of Agriculture crimes. So we were the Department of Veterans Affairs, and I was responsible, as I said, for West Virginia to Maine. Now, in the VA OIG, as it's referred to, it's actually a little different than many of the other IGs because most IGs have two components. They have an Office of Investigation, where I was from, and an Office of Audit, which has auditors. But in uh, Health and Human Services, I believe, and also in the VA, we have something else. We have the Office of Healthcare Inspection. And those are doctors and nurses that go around to hospitals and they conduct investigations and surveys in the hospitals to make sure that the doctors and nurses performing the way they, they should be performing. Is that like when they check the medicine in the storage and all that? That's absolutely right. That is that is absolutely right. So that that's what they do. So I was sitting in my office one day, and this goes back to the 1980s, and uh, I get a phone call from the chief of psychiatry at the VA hospital out in Northport, Long Island. And she says, uh, Bruce, you're not going to believe this, but we actually have a physician working here. And there's a news report 
that he spent time in prison for poisoning his co-workers. What? That was my reaction. <laughs> so I looked at the... First, I looked at the calendar to see if this was April 1st, and maybe this is an April Fool's Day trick or something, but since it wasn't, I said, are you sure about this? I said, because, you know what, I didn't think in the United States of America that you could spend time in prison for poisoning people, come out and become a physician, but I was wrong, because that's exactly what happened. And that's how I got introduced to my first medical serial killer by the name of Dr. Michael Swango. A little bit about Michael Swango. When Michael Swango was in medical school, his fellow students referred to him as Double O Swango, licensed to kill. Because it seemed that every time he was visiting patients, a number of them seemed to die unexpectedly. They couldn't figure it out. And of course, nobody would want to believe that a student was intentionally murdering patients. So they went to the dean and they said, you know, Dean, we don't think this guy Swango should be a physician. Um... And the dean said, well, what do you know? You're only students. I'm the dean. I think he needs some more training. You know, we need to keep him in school a little bit longer. But he'll be fine. That's exactly what happened. So he graduates medical school. And uh, he starts an internship at Ohio State University Medical Center. And guess what's happening at Ohio State University Medical Center? Patients start dying unexpectedly. And there was this young patient, a young student at the university. Her name was Cynthia McGee. And she got in a car accident with another student, and she's actually improving until she gets a visit from Dr. Swango. Then she dies unexpectedly. Michael Swango didn't get charged with that crime. The other student who hit her with his car, he got charged with vehicular homicide because it looked like she expired as a result of the collision, which was not true at all. Wow. All of a sudden, patients start dying unexpectedly again in Ohio State University. You say, we can't keep this guy Swangle here, but we can't prove. We can't prove that he actually murdered anybody because these patients are very, very sick. And sometimes they could just expire from their natural disease processes. We can't actually prove that he killed anybody. I'm sorry, but nobody has that much bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, but proving it is another thing. That's true. Proving it is a, so they just happy to see him go. So he leaves Ohio State University Medical Center and he goes to what was really his first love, which was being an EMT, because he loved to be on accident scenes. He loved the gore. He loved the emergencies. Bet he he really thrived at this. So one day he brings some donuts in for his co-workers and they eat it. And then that night they all get terribly sick. And he starts calling them up and he says, tell me all the symptoms. Tell me everything that happened to you. Tell me when it first started. Because he was reliving the excitement of poisoning them twice. Once when he actually poisoned them. And the second time when he calls up and he starts hearing how they were suffering. So these co-workers were not stupid. Okay, they suspected something. About two weeks later, he comes in with some iced tea. He says, hi, guys, here's some iced tea. Oh, they said, oh, thanks a lot, uh, Dr. Swango. We'll have it later. They take it to the lab. They test it. It's loaded with arsenic. They call the police. The police do a great investigation. They go to his house. They find poisons. They find books on poisons. And he uh, goes to trial, and the judge sentenced him to five years in prison for poisoning his co-workers. Now, again, you didn't think in the United States of America, somebody like that could come out 
and be a physician again, that's exactly what happened. Because you see, after five years of being a sociopath, he was a very, very convincing guy. And he started forging all kinds of paperwork to show that he actually only did six months in jail and that the governor of the state restored his civil rights and nobody really did an in-depth check on it. And next thing you know, he's working at a VA hospital on the West Coast and everything's going fine. He's actually doing a good job as a doctor. And he meets this nurse, a VA nurse. They fall in love, they get engaged and everything's fine until a new story comes out that this guy Swango spent time in jail for poisoning his co-workers. Okay. Well, that's not a very positive thing in a relationship. No. So she gets very, very upset. They break up. She's getting all these headaches. She doesn't know what it is. She goes home to mom, dad in Virginia. She says, I really love this guy. I, I don't know. I just can't take it anymore. She goes to the park. She takes out a gun and she blows her brains out. Oh, my God. I'm trying to go for that, can you? Well, actually, you can. Because even though the family cremated the body, they kept a lock of our hair and we had it tested. It was loaded with arsenic. See, Swango was even poisoning his own fiance. But that makes you want to kill yourself? Uh, you know what? She had such intense headaches and she was so depressed mm. over breaking up that it was sort of a combination of factors. Okay? If he had never been, never had poisoned her, she wouldn't have done that. Well, next thing you know, to make a long story short, he bounces around the country and he winds up going to Stony Brook University Medical Center on Long Island. And he's going for a residency, and guess what field? He's going for a residency in psychiatry. Oh, Jesus. That means he, what? He has to go in front of a board of trained psychiatrists and convince them that he should be in the program. And he's such a smooth talker that he convinces them, and that's how he wound up, because... Stony Brook had a teaching arrangement with the VA Medical Center on Northport. That's how he winds up in my area, in the Northport VA. So I hop in the car with one of my agents, and I go out to see him. He was a handsome, looked like a movie star, a handsome, charming, well-tanned, with aviator sunglasses, looked like he just got off the golf course. <laughs> well, you didn't know better, seriously. If your daughter brought this guy home, you'd say, wow. This guy is a physician, an ex-Marine physician working at a VA hospital. My God, this is some cash. Scary, right? isn't it? But you, right? And I tell you, I would have thought the same thing if my daughter had brought him. And then I started asking him about some things. And he starts giving me the same story, you know, the barroom brawl story, the whole bit. And then I asked him for permission to search his room. And he declined. Oh. And his attitude changed very, very quickly. And unfortunately, I didn't have enough probable cause for a search warrant because I didn't have any evidence that he committed any crime at the VA at that moment. A day or two later, he leaves, packs up and leaves. He winds up in Zimbabwe, Africa. In Zimbabwe, Africa, he kills women and children and pregnant women, try to uh, murder his landlady. Oh, my God. Hospital to hospital. But he had to return to the United States because his passport had to be renewed. And when he returned to the United States, we arrested him, but not for murder, because we didn't have any evidence that he murdered anybody. We arrested him for what's like every federal agent's favorite 
crime, lying to the government. <laughs> he lied to me and he lied on his application with that barroom brawl nonsense. So we got him for lying to the government. For how long does that give you? Gave us three years in jail. Okay, there you okay. go. And then we had three years to try to determine whether Michael Swango had murdered any of our nation's heroes, you know, tomorrow's Veterans Day, at any of our nation's heroes at a VA hospital in Northport, Long Island. Now, I had an entire inventory of cases involving hospitals, you know, drug diversion cases, thefts, uh, bribery, contract fraud, the whole gamut of crimes. I had never, ever, ever had a nurse or physician murder case ever in my life. So how do I do this? I've actually never done anything like this. Well, my boss says, you know, Bruce, we're going to introduce you to a forensic pathologist named Dr. Michael Barden. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He used to have a show called Autopsy on TV. And anytime there's a high profile murder, he's usually there, you know. And I, w- I went to visit him. And he was working at the state police, New York State Police at the time. And he says, don't worry, Bruce, I will teach you how to do this. And learning how to do this from Michael Bodden was like learning physics from Albert Einstein. You really couldn't get much of a better teacher. So how do we do this? How do we begin? Well, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at all the medical records of all the patients that were at the VA Medical Center at the time that Swango was there. And we're going to assemble a team. And this team is going to consist of, of course, himself as a forensic pathologist, a toxicologist, a physician who is schooled in chart review that could look at a chart and make a determination whether that patient really had expired as a result of his natural disease processes, or there's something else there, something else there. You know, Michael Bonin explained natural death to me like this. He says, natural death is like you shut off a fan and the blades gradually slow down and they gradually stop. But these people we're looking for, they're like a light bulb. They're bright one moment and dark the next. And that's what we're looking for. And also on this team was at the time a relatively new profession called forensic nurses. These are nurses that are trained in both forensic science and nursing, and they were phenomenal. Tremendous help. They were really able to bridge the gap between the lay people like myself and the medical professionals who spoke another language here. <laughs> So they were really excellent. So we narrowed it down to about five cases that the team believed were suspicious. And when you look at the death certificates, all the death certificates said myocardial infarction, you know, some heart ailment, something like that, which is really like a catch-all because eventually everybody gets that, you know? So it's really like a catch-all. And you have to remember that hospitals don't do autopsies anymore for the most part. I mean, because nobody wants to pay for it. It used to be considered a great teaching tool, but they don't really do it anymore. Some hospitals just don't do it at all. And some do very, very, very few autopsies. But a hospital autopsy is not the same as a forensic autopsy. A hospital autopsy is more of a confirmatory autopsy. Could the patient have expired as a result of one or more of his disease processes? If the answer is yes, that's good to go. But also you have to remember that death certificates are not often signed by the treating physician. Sometimes they're too busy. Sometimes they're not available. As a matter of fact, there's a famous story about what happened in Staten Island, New York. Staten Island, one of the five boroughs of New York City, 
people were looking at death certificates and they said, my God, so many people are dying from myocardial infarction in Staten Island. What the hell's going on? It must be that pollution from New Jersey. Killing everybody. He couldn't figure it out. Well, the answer was they weren't really dying of myocardial infarction. It was all a big fraud because the funeral homes, in a rush to bury people, were waiting for the doctors to actually fill out the death certificates. So they forged the death certificates and they put myocardial infarction for all of them. So when the statisticians looked at the stats, they thought everybody was dying from myocardial infarction, but it was completely bogus. Oh All right. Well, I've learned over the years that we take death certificates with a with a grain of salt. You know, there's a lot of articles on 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 that. So we narrowed it down to five people. So what do we do now? Now comes uh, time to contact the families. You got to bring them back. Now imagine uh, getting a, a a knock on the door like this. It says, "Hi, you know, uh, hi. My name is Bruce Sackman." I'm from the Inspector General of the VA hospitals, and we have reason to believe that your dad's death may be of a suspicious nature. Can we have your permission to go to the cemetery, dig up his body, and do some tests? Imagine getting a visit like that. That's a hard one. I mean, obviously you want to do it, but it's like rehashing the death all over again. And the families were wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Couldn't be better. On some occasions, I've had family members actually want to go to the cemetery and watch it. They actually wanted to see us bring the coffin up and and watch it. Other times, they they didn't. Mm, And of course, we were so respectful for them. And we promised that we would return the body in the coffin, you know, in pristine condition, which of course we always did. So now I find myself for the first time in my life at the cemetery with a backhoe and the backhoe comes and digs up and then the coffin is the ground and they put ropes underneath the coffin and they're pulling the coffin up. And then I see Dr. Michael Bonnet jump into the grave site and take soil samples. And I said, what what is that for? And he says, well, we have to test the soil to see if there's arsenic because if there's arsenic in the soil and find arsenic in the body, the defense is going to claim he wasn't poisoned. It was the arsenic that was in the ground that seeped into his body. And that's why you found arsenic in his body. So I had to test the soil as well. Then I, I, I find myself at the morgue. Uh, that's an experience. Yeah. And, um, the, you know, they're doing what the doctors do. They cut open the bodies. And Dr. Bonin takes out a heart and he shows me the heart. And he says, you see this heart? She says, there's nothing wrong with this. There's no heart disease there at all. So the team eventually came to the decision that this is going to, a lot has to do with the toxicology. And what they did is they took tissue samples and we had to get a private lab to actually test the tissue samples. There's a lab in Philadelphia called National Medical Services. It's the largest private forensic lab in the country, maybe the world. And they made a determination that there were two drugs in these patients that should never have been. There was no medical reason for them to be there. Uh, One was succinylcholine. In the hospital, they call it sucks. It's a paralytic. If they want to put a tube down you, it paralyzes you on the tube. The other drug was epinephrine, which is adrenaline. And if it's not used properly, it could speed up your heart and kill you. So Swangle's in jail and he's about to get out. And he thinks that uh, his three years are over and now he's going to hop on a plane and keep doing what he does best. Uh, Not so fast, Michael. Not so fast. Because we had indicted him for murdering patients 
at the VA Medical Center. And we said to him, look, uh, Dr. Swango, some bad news for you. The United States just signed an extradition treaty uh, with the government of Zimbabwe. So if we go to trial, and even if we lose, we're just going to put you on the plane, fly you over to Zimbabwe, and drop you off right there at the airport where they're waiting for you to try you for murdering women and children and pregnant. So it didn't take him long to agree to plead guilty. <laughs> you know, and, uh, Pick your and prison wisely. <laughs> and then, then comes the sentencing. And then you know, the sentencings are really probably the most emotional part of this because the families are there. And the families have an opportunity to talk about dad, how dad served in World War II, Korea, Vietnam, only to be murdered at a VA hospital. So sad. And then, you know, Swango had to stand up and tell the judge exactly what he did. And he stood up at attention like a Marine. And he said uh, he murdered these people using a paralytic. And he got sentenced to uh, three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. And then the judge said one thing that I had never heard before or since. The judge said, Dr. Swango, I'm sentencing you to life in prison without parole. If Congress should change the law and institute parole, your parole is denied in advance. <laughs> so he cannot it. get out of jail. And interestingly enough, he also pled guilty to killing Cynthia McGee, that student in Ohio State. So all the charges against the other student were eventually dropped. Well, good. Yeah. So that's the case that kind of got me started on this world of medical serial killers. Because once you have one successful case, next thing you know, you're the go-to person. Oh, I only had one case, but now all of a sudden I'm the go-to person. And the next case that came up was a, a case involving a, a nurse, Kristen Gilbert, at the VA hospital in Massachusetts. Now, you know, my vision of a serial killer was always like a crazy Charles Manson type, you know, with a swastika on his forehead and just a really wacky looking guy. But here comes a typical soccer mom, you know. Yeah. Oh, hi, Bruce. How are you? Yeah, I'll chat with you when I come back with the kids, you know. Um, not your typical serial killer. By That's what makes shape. it so scary. Of the imagination, you know. And she killed. Oh, now, just getting back to Swango, people always ask me, how many people did he kill? Medical serial killers kill so many people, they can't even remember themselves how many people they kill. It's not like your traditional serial killer that maybe kills seven or eight people, right? A medical serial killer, I'd say the average is about 30, you know? And that's because they kill so many people until somebody actually suspects something from happening. Because look, the overwhelming majority of healthcare professionals are honest, hardworking, dedicated people who have taken an oath to save lives. So who's going to believe that somebody who has taken an oath to save lives, and they've actually seen them save lives, is intentionally taking lives. It's almost impossible. Impossible. You don't want to let your mind go there. You're going to try to think of any other reason why this could be happening. But I mean, the science, they'll, they'll be there. You know, it's a great place to hide. Now, look, if you think about it, if you think about it, if you're so inclined to pick a profession to murder someone, what professions and what location might you choose? Well, let's think about this. 
first of all, you might want to choose a profession that has the power of life and death over somebody, right? You no, know, and some traditional serial killers have masqueraded as policemen, you know, but what other profession do we know has the power of life and death over someone? You also want to work in an environment where everyone has taken an oath to protect and serve, you know, the physicians have the Hippocratic oath, the nurses have something called the Florence Nightingale oath. It's all to save lives, and they do. The hospital that I last worked in, they perform miracles every day. I mean, they were—they just perform miracles. The people were incredible. To believe that somebody in a setting like that is intentionally taking lives is very, very difficult for anybody to believe at all, okay? And then you might want to try a profession where the victim and the family trust you implicitly. Listen to that nurse, sweetheart. Listen to that doctor. He has your best interest in mind. And of course, 99.99% of the time, they do have their best interest. Okay, so that's not unusual to say that or think that, all right? You might want to choose a professor where the normally strong and assertive become the meek and mild. I mean, look how many really tough guys wind up in the hospital. They're scared of that nurse that's coming over with that big needle. They don't ask any questions, right? You're not in the mood to ask questions. Many times they're alone. They don't have any family members with them. They don't have any advocates with them. Hmm, pretty interesting, huh? How about working in a profession where there's a shortage of skilled workers? You know, there's a real shortage in some parts of the country. It's very difficult to find doctors and nurses. I mean, they have to go all the way to the Philippines, some common island, and then when you have a pandemic, forget about it. I mean, there's a shortage of skilled workers. So you know what? If we didn't do such a perfect job on their background investigation, well, excuse me. We couldn't find anybody to work here. We're lucky we have nurses at all here. We're lucky we have physicians at all here, okay? How about working in a place where death is a common everyday occurrence? Somebody dies in a hospital or a nursing home, is that going to cause a police investigation? I mean, no. every day, right? Every day there are deaths in a hospital or a nursing home. I mean, how about working in a place where you work alone at night? Have you ever been on a hospital ward like three o'clock in the morning? No. You know, in some wards, there's not that much going on. There's a nurse and a nurse's aide, and there's nothing to stop you from taking that curtain and putting the curtain around you and the patient, and nobody can really, really see what's going on. You know what I mean? It's really, really tough to see. And look, look, this, how about working in a place where the police don't want to come? You know, most cops, like myself, didn't become cops because we were good in chemistry and biology, Okay. You know, that wasn't our first choice. We were going to give us chance biology. So we said, all right, we're going to, you know, become cops. Uh, and it's a very, very difficult avenue to navigate. First of all, you have this HIPAA law. You know, this, what, this Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. You got it. So what records can I get as a policeman? What records can I get? Do I need a court order? Do I need a subpoena? I mean... It's very, very confusing. I, I, I really don't know. You know, it's not an area that we normally go into. Right. So that's the kind of place I think if I was going to harm people, I might want to work. All right. And listen, what happens if, if the patient, if the victim cries out, hey, that nurse is trying to kill me. We hear that all the time. <laughs> we don't pay any attention to that. You know what it is? It's the patient is obviously suffering from the numerous medications that he or she has taken, and they have this hallucinogenic effect on the patient. 
all right? So the patient actually is hallucinating that the nurse is trying to kill them or the doctor's trying to kill them. But of course, the nurse or doctor isn't actually trying to kill them. It's just an hallucination, all right? It's called hospital delirium. It's a real condition. Mm. It's a condition called hospital delirium. So if you keep saying this doctor's trying to kill me, well, we're just going to put a little note in your file saying that you are suffering hospital delirium. It's a, it's, a, it's a real condition. So let's say now you're a nurse and you suspect another nurse of maybe intentionally harming people. Well, how does this come about? Well, it seems like every time this nurse Bruce is on duty, the death rate goes up. Nurse Bruce takes a week off, the death rate goes down. Does that mean Bruce is a serial killer? No, it doesn't mean Bruce is a serial killer. Maybe he has the most difficult patients. Maybe he has the sickest patients. Maybe that's why, you know, there's so many suspicious deaths when, when he's on duty. But were these patients supposed to expire when they did, or was it a shock? You know, if you ever had a loved one in, in the hospital that was near death, I mean, you knew that they didn't have long. The staff knew that they didn't have long. But these patients are just the opposite. Many of them are actually improving, and then they expire suddenly. And that's why it kind of sets up the red flag. Right. Now, you as a nurse will go to the hospital management and express your suspicions to them. Oh, that's going to go over real big. <laughs> Let me ask a question here, nurse. Did, did you actually see uh, Nurse Bruce kill anybody? Well, no, I didn't see Nurse Bruce kill anybody. I'm just telling you when he's on duty, the death rate goes up. Let me ask you a question, nurse. Is your background so perfect? I mean, if we drug tested you right now, are you going to test positive or negative for drugs? Have you ever been in trouble? What kind of ratings have you received as a nurse? Have you ever been suspended or had any problems? You know, the reason why I ask you this is if you go forward with these allegations, in some ways, like, you know, you put yourself under the microscope as well. Right. Sure, you actually want to do that? Now, I thought in the United States of America, we had laws that protect whistleblowers. I mean, you see this all the time, whistleblower laws. Well, I thought that until I read in the New York Times about a case involving two nurses who suspected wrongdoing of a physician in a place called Kermit, Texas. Now, Kermit, Texas is in the oil basin in Texas, and it's a very small area, and it's very, very hard to get mm -hmm. doctors and nurses in Kermit, Texas. Why? You know, we have to go all the way to the Philippines, you know. Yes. Yeah, okay. These two nurses, they say, look, manager, we think this doctor is a danger to patients and we think you should do something. And they said, look, nurses, uh, you don't know what, what you're talking about. So thank you very much, but just go back to your office and be quiet. Now, these two nurses happen to be the entire compliance department of the hospital. And they said, well, what do we do now? We went to management. Management told us to go back and shut up. So one nurse says, I have an idea. Let's send an anonymous letter to the state medical board and we'll let the state medical board know what's going on here. So they send this anonymous letter to the state medical board and the doctor gets wind of it. And boy, is he pissed. So he calls one of his patients who happens to be the local sheriff. Ooh. And he says, hey, sheriff, I think these nurses have violated the law and I think they're intentionally trying to harm it. And the sheriff says, don't worry, doc, I'm on the case. And he gets a search warrant for their hospital computers and he finds that they are the authors of that anonymous letter to the state about the doctor and has them prosecuted for misuse of official information, which is actually a felony in those parts. They get arrested, they get fired. Oh my goodness. 
They go to trial. The jury's out for a half hour. The jury comes back and they say, are you kidding me? These nurses deserve a medal for what they got, not to be criminally prosecuted. And they won the case and they got their money back and all. But what kind of message did that send out to other potential whistleblowers out there in the medical profession, right? Hey, did you hear about those two nurses in Texas? Oh, yeah, they won the case eventually. You know what happened to them? They got arrested. They got fired. They lost all this money. Now, do you want to go through this? You're better off keeping your mouth shut. Yeah, unfortunately. And, and, and don't say anything, all right? So that was a terrible, terrible. So sometimes the hospital will come back like this and they'll say, oh, thank you very much, nurse, for expressing your concerns. So this is what we did. We put together a board of our very best physicians and nurses to review this one employee's cases. Sometimes on one or two occasions, we actually even performed the autopsies and we looked in all the medical records and we made the determination that all these patients expired as a direct result of their disease processes. Thank you very much for coming forward, okay? Now, who's on this board? Well, it's all employees of the hospital, all under the direction of the medical center director. I'd say there was a little conflict there, wouldn't you? A little bit, a little bit. <laughs> Not to mention the fact that they all have a vested interest in nothing bad happened to the hospital. Look, if you're the director of a hospital, do you want the word to get out that you have a medical serial killer in your hospital? Absolutely. My God, you'll be out of business like tomorrow. So you know what? The best thing to do is let's help this employee find a job in another hospital. So this employee is not our problem anymore. This employee is another hospital's problem. And this is very common throughout the world. One of the most grievous examples was in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Nurse Cohen. The multiple hospitals in, in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and one hospital, when they suspected something, never said anything to the second hospital, who never said anything to the third hospital, who never said to the fourth hospital, leaving a trail of deaths behind them. This has gone on throughout the world. But I can tell you something positive actually recently came up. In Germany, there's a nurse that killed over 100 patients, admitted to killing over 100 patients, although the German police and myself suspect that he killed closer to 300 patients wow. in, in multiple countries. And what happened was that when one hospital suspected something, they never said anything to the second hospital. So for the first time that I'm aware of anywhere in the world, the prosecutors have actually charged the managers with mm. aiding and abetting these crimes because they suspected something and they, they didn't say anything it. to the second hospital. Now, I don't know if they're going to get convicted or not. They should. I don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be very, very interesting to see. I'm looking forward to seeing what's happening. I don't know. That'll be a game changer. That is a very, 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 very important so what normally happens is that nurses or doctors who suspect something, they get so frustrated with the management, they finally go to the police. And this is what happens when the police show up. They'll meet the director of the hospital and probably somebody from the general counsel's office, and they'll say this. Thank you very much, officer, for coming. We appreciate your concern on this matter. We had the same concerns. We put together a board of our very best medical experts. And sometimes we even performed the autopsy, we reviewed all the medical records, and we came out with the determination that these deaths were not suspicious, that these patients had so much wrong with them that they died from one or more of their disease processes. And here's a big report if you want to read it. 
Now, if you want to challenge those findings, if you have the resources, the time, wherewithal to challenge those findings, go right ahead. But this is what we found, and here's the report. And how many police departments are going to say, thank you very much, doctor. <laughs> Take that report and go on to the next case. Right. You didn't want to go in the hospital to begin with, okay? And that is why medical serial killers throughout the world kill so many people. The number one uh, physician serial killer was in England. His name was Harold Shipman. He killed about 300 patients and he made house calls. And when you walk through the streets of England with the detectives, as I did, they said, well, he killed somebody in that house and somebody in that house. You know, um, so he's number one, but my German nurse is getting uh, pretty close to number two. There have been a number of Italy, a number in the United States. But just getting back now to Kristen Gilbert, Kristen Gilbert, the soccer mom, serial killer, you might say, from the VA in Massachusetts, she used epinephrine. And so why, you know, people always ask, why do they do this? What motivates them to do this? Because it mimics a heart attack. You know, it's not... It's not like one size fits all, but I can tell you what I've seen to be the most common. When you look in the evaluation of many of these nurses and some physicians, you'll see they're okay caregivers, except when it comes to a code. A code and, you know, that emergency in the hospital when the uh, the alarm goes off and the bells and whistles go and the crash guard comes running in and the nurses and doctors are trying everything they can to revive a patient. Very, very exciting. Well, they crave the excitement of that code. We used to call them code junkies, okay? And they would actually cause a patient to go in a code so they could show off to the staff how skilled they are, what a care, what a, a caring nurse or doctor they are, when in fact they actually cause the patient to code to begin with. And this condition has a, a very fancy name to it, it's actually called Munchausen syndrome by proxy. And Munchausen syndrome by proxy, an example of that is a mother might intentionally harm a child, bring the child into the hospital to try to show the staff what a caring parent she is. Oh, I noticed this and I'm I'm so worried. Oh, help me and all this, all to get the attention of others. Now, my nurse in Germany freely admitted to that. Kristen Gilbert was that way. You know, people used to say, Doctors used to say, hey, if I ever coded, I would want Kristen Gilbert there. She takes charge. She starts barking orders to the young interns who were scared out of their mind. She's a terrific caregiver. So you can see why people in this kind of situation can get away with so many murders before they actually get caught because people don't want to believe after Kristen Gilbert, and let me say a few things about Kristen Gilbert. So Kristen Gilbert actually used epinephrine. Well, we talked about epinephrine mm-hmm. uh, to murder her patients. And that case went to trial. That trial lasted six months long. Wow. She was actually found guilty. And this is in Massachusetts. And this was a death penalty case in a state that doesn't have the death penalty. Wow. Would you have a death penalty case in a state that doesn't have the death penalty? And the answer is because it was in a federal institution. So the federal law is what took precedent over the state law. So even though there's no death penalty in the state of Massachusetts, there's a federal death penalty. So after she's found guilty, there's a second trial, a second trial where the jury has to decide whether she should receive the death penalty or not. That is very moving. 
and very, very emotional. That's when the whole human side of this thing comes right to the forefront. The family gets up and they talk about dad, how dad was improving. And then they got that phone call that changed their lives and ended in the death of their dad. It's a very, very moving. Luckily, and I, I say this, she uh, did not get the death penalty. She got a life without the possibility of parole. And on the team really didn't want her. We had to make an argument. We didn't really want to see the death penalty because she was a mom with two young kids. And, you know, um, we thought it'd just be better that she locked away forever. But you wouldn't know that when you read the press accounts. The press accounts, of course, thought we were like the Gestapo, you know? We wanted to hang her in the town square and all that. Nothing really couldn't have been further from the truth at all. Nothing could have been further from the truth. But that was, that was quite a story on Kristen Gilbert. And then I got involved, of course, in other cases around the world. A very interesting case up in Albany involving two physicians at the Albany VA who ran a program of research. And in order to get research money for a particular ailment, you have to find a certain number of patients. So let's say you're studying a particular type of cancer. You have to find 10 patients that have that cancer and meet something called the inclusion exclusion criteria. What that means is that you have all the right blood work, all the right everything that you need to be in that study. Because if something's off, that study is not going to be accurate. So this doctor, his name was Cornack, he said, how am I going to find in Albany 10 patients that meet this inclusion exclusion criteria? Well, I know what I'll do. I'll go in their medical records and I'll alter their medical records and I'll alter their medical records to show that they really are eligible to be in this research study because they do meet the inclusion exclusion criteria, even though they didn't really meet the exclusion uh, inclusion criteria. And patients died because they were given this investigational drug uh, where they should have never, ever been in the study. And he was convicted and sent to jail. And that was the first homicide case in connection with medical research ever ever so that was good and all those stories and a couple more of course are detailed in the, my book behind the murder curtain and i hope you have an opportunity to read it yeah it's so interesting so interesting just like remember orville he was the angel of death well yeah yes that's right I remember him exactly. And, uh, you know, they all sort of get that moniker, you know, <laughs> the angel of death. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of interesting. Yes, of course, I remember Orville. And uh, there were others, you know, that kind of predate me. But every couple of months, one of these cases seemed to surface throughout the world. Did you see the one in Texas that recently came out? There's one in Texas. Yeah. Texas nurses found guilty of killing four patients by injecting them with air. Have you seen this? I have not. With well, he air? was actually given the death penalty for this. Now, he hasn't, you know, when there's a death penalty decision, there's an automatic appeal. So I don't know if he'll actually get the death penalty. But he was actually injecting patients with air in their veins. And his reason, he said, is, believe it or not, he wanted to keep them in the ICU longer so he could get more overtime. Stop it. Yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not kidding. You know, on rare occasions, the financial motive has actually come into these killings. Um there's a case in Texas, famous case, 
about a home where patients were accepted as hospice patients. And the way the hospice rules work with the government and the insurance companies that you can only be compensated for hospice care for a certain amount of time. After a while, if the patient is still alive, you took that patient in too early and you're not going to get compensated. Mm -hmm. So what did the manager say? Well, you see that patient over there, Bruce, he only has two days left before we're not going to get compensated anymore for his stay here in hospice. He cannot live more than two days because we won't get compensated anymore and we'll all be out of work. So you know what? That patient's got to go. That patient's got to go. And that patient went and the number of patients went. Something just dawned on me also about Kristen Gilbert. The nurses that came forward to tell us about Kristen Gilbert, they went through that entire scenario I gave you where management poo-pooed it. Yeah. You know, where they had problems in their own backgrounds that they had to admit to. But after the case was over and she was found guilty and the nurses returned to work, how do you think their co-workers greeted them? Their co-workers hated them. They said, look what you did to this hospital. Look how you ruined the reputation of this hospital. We have spent our careers here saving people, but because of you, bringing this to the inspector general and causing this to happen, nobody wants to come to this hospital anymore. The reputation of the hospital was ruined because you had to bring this matter to the IG. No, because she was murdering people. <laughs> so look, if your own co-workers feel that way, not much of an incentive to come forward, is it? No. Plus, what happened with those nurses out in Texas? So it takes real heroes. And there are a lot of heroes out there. There are real heroes to to come forward, but dedicated myself to, you know, doing these kind of cases. Absolutely. This is a subject that needs to be talked about because people don't think about that all the time. And it does happen. Correct. Do you know, since you're in there, have they done anything with the system to track doctors a little better? No, that, yes, yes. That's a great question. You know, one of the best things to come out of the Michael Spango was investigation and conviction was the whole world of medical credential improved dramatically, all right? Where now hospitals have teams of people that double and triple check everything about a nurse's or physician's background before they hire them. Most of the time, the way I say most of the time is what happens if you have a pandemic? What happens if you can't find nurses or doctors and you have to hire traveling nurses or doctors just to come in and fulfill? then the background check sometimes is not as good as it could be. Which I understand, you know, it's like the enemy's coming over the hill. Thousands and thousands of patients are coming in. I mean, you don't have time to do a thorough background on everybody. You got to hope for the best. I get it. You need warm bodies. So, you know, that would enable people to get away with things. Also, during the pandemic, if you remember, family members were not allowed to go into the hospital to visit their, their loved ones, you know, for pandemic reasons. So now you have a situation where you have traveling doctors and nurses in a hospital, not fully vetted, and the family can't go in there and see what's going on. Now there's a case in Germany of a a physician that's charged with murdering some COVID-19 patients. We'll see what happens with that. We'll see what happens with that. That's insane. Absolutely. Well, do you want to tell everyone where they can find your book? Yes, yes. So Behind the Murder Curtain, you could easily pick it up on Amazon. 
Uh, I have a website. It's behindthemurdercurtain.com. Easy to remember. And you could download it or, you know, you could buy it. It's inexpensive. It's a very fast read. Two nights, you'll be thoroughly schooled on the topic. Yeah. And uh, I, I think you'll find it interesting, very interesting. I guess you could say as creepy as all this stuff is, I do. I just, I love it. And I just want to make everybody educated in everything that's going on in the world. And let's try to make this a better place. All right. Very good. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bruce. I really appreciate it. You're very, very welcome. And I, I look forward to when, whenever this is going to be on. It'll be on next Thursday. Okay. Next Thursday. Very mm-hmm. good. All right. Thank you very much. Be well. All right. That's it for tonight's episode. We'll talk crime another time. Bye. Bye.